Log Talk Radio. Good evening, America. This is a Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman with Cliff Stewart and Ethel Lopez. And I always say it. How you doing this evening? Doing great. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, we got a good show lined up for uh, for this evening. Our phone number this evening, if you'd like to call in, is 347-838-8976. 347-838-8976. As I always like to start off with the disclaimer and state that we are not attorneys and a just cause coast to coast does not provide legal advice. We suggest that you contact your personal legal advisor for your legal needs and also want to just state that the opinions expressed by the callers and guests do not necessarily reflect that of a just cause or a just cause coast to coast. But as always, thank you for tuning in and choosing to spend this evening with us. Okay, uh, this evening we have uh, in the lineup, later on in the program, we have Sydney Powell. Uh, Ms. Powell is an appellate attorney out of Dallas, Texas. She's going to share a little bit about a book that she uh, is coming out with, and uh, we got a preview on that book, so that's going to be that's interesting. And then just the story behind the book. Yeah. And then also Nick Yaris, uh, he's going to join us uh, for our profile on the wrongfully convicted. And Mr. Yaris, is, um, he, he actually appeared in that uh, DVD documentary that we were talking about last week, yes. After Innocence. And so uh, Mr. Yaris has a interesting story to tell as well. Uh, let me see here. So what we want to do next, uh, Ethel, is let's let's uh, talk about a little bit of uh, uh, the IRP six mm-hmm. and something that we you know something that we've been doing week Absolutely. after week to draw attention to the case. Yeah. And so what's what's going on yes, there? Yes. Yes. We're just we're just calling you know I'm calling on people to call out to uh, Eric Holder's office <laughs> at two zero two. 514-2003 and 2005. Again, that number is 202-514-2003 and 2005. We're asking you to call Attorney General Eric Holger's office and ask him, investigate what's happening with the, with the missing transcript, over 200 pages of the transcript missing in the IRP6 case. And we need something done about that and done now. And, you know, along with that, we have the lawsuit uh, against court reporter Darlene, Darlene Martinez, uh, which also implicates uh, federal judge uh, uh, Christine Arguello, and uh, where the over 200 pages is called out in the transcript yeah. that uh, the judge was not going to make that available for the for the uh, guys, and that uh, definitely ties right into the Fifth Amendment violation that occurred during a sidebar conversation uh, where the judge compelled them to take the stand. Now, if you'd like to find out more information about the IRP6 case, there is a website that you can go to. It's freetheirp6.org, freetheirp6.org. And uh, uh, out there we have all the documents that you want to, that you need to review to understand this case. And that's going to be something that we're going to be talking about in our uh, segment on things that make you go, hmm, as well, because of the fact, uh, and we'll dig a little bit into that here in a moment. But... Also on that 200 pages, uh, Ethel, we have a uh, petition yes. that's out on change.org, okay, mm-hmm. change.org, 
do a search on IRP6 yes. and uh, sign the petition. We ask every week that, uh, that you sign the petition. Uh, if you have not, if you're a new listener, if you, haven't, if you haven't signed it, we ask that you do so. We ask that you call your fr- friends and family. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we are gaining momentum on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, also just want to make sure that everyone understands who the IRP6 are. Uh, they are the IT professionals who started IRP Solutions Corporation, and uh, they were developing software for law enforcement uh, at the federal, state, and local levels. The, uh, the business uh, practices, uh, the company got in debt, and the business was accused of wrongdoing. The debt was criminalized. The business was raided in February 2005. The guys went to trial in 2011. Mm-hmm. And they have been sitting in federal prison in Florence, Colorado, since 2012. So we're looking at now over 20 months of sitting in prison. And uh, their case is currently under appeal. And there are a lot of uh, questionable activity even with that. Yeah. Because of the fact that, Ethel, you reached out to one of the appellate uh, judges. Absolutely. And we found out that, uh, what did we find out? Well, you know, we, we found out that, just like you said, the case has been back in Denver. You know, this is, this is one of the appellate judges' uh, uh, hearts. You know, his ju- judicial assistant had told me that, 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 that when those cases are done, they're sent back to Denver, Colorado. You know, so so they were done and sent back and went and she gave me the name and number of the man to call there to talk to. And I talked to him and he confirmed, yes, it's been back since May of 2013. Now, that's a long time. That's uncalled for. Absolutely. And I talked to uh, the said man, Doug Kressler, who's the uh, the chief clerk up there in Denver, Colorado. I talked to him yesterday and, you know, after holding his feet to the fire for a while, going back and forth with him. Uh, he finally had to admit that, yes, this had because, you know, he's saying, well, you know, the appeals take as long as they take and the judges take the amount of time to take, you know, all these politically correct answers. And he finally had to come to the conclusion, uh, you know, after much back and forth and me frustrating his nerves, that okay. you know, he had to admit that, yes, this has taken longer than it should. Uh, and his and, and this is in his experience and mm-hmm. his opinion, you know a case like this with uh, 200 pages of missing transcript that it has taken longer than average uh, to come back. And we know that yeah. anybody looking at it is like, okay, you have 200 pages of transcript missing. How do the judges come to a conclusion? What other conclusion could they come to yeah, absolutely. except to say, we cannot make a decision on this. The uh, main issue on appeal is included in that in the missing transcript. So how do we make a decision? Absolutely. And you know what? Let me add this to that because when he when I had spoken with him, uh, this Doug Kressler in Denver, who's the chief clerk there, you know, he had told me that um, well, it has you know, yes, it's here, but it has to go back to the judges. It has to go back to the appellate judges. That's and I I told her that's not what that's not what she said. So I called her back, and this is um, uh, Judge Hart's office, his judicial assistant, and asked her specifically. Do the case have to come back to Judge Hart again? She said, no. No, it does not. We're done with it. It's been back. Now, that's one of them things that make you say, hmm. Exactly. It's like, Caught you. why would it need to go back in the first place? And since it doesn't, what are you guys doing with it up in Denver? Absolutely. It does not take a year, you know, since May of last year for this uh, so-called writing judge mm-hmm. to say, hey, Here's what the other, here's what the other two judges came up with. Here's my opinion. 
here's the conclusion on the matter. Yeah. And the bottom line, I mean, you got missing transcript. In that yep. missing transcript, the judge is saying she said one thing, the defendants are saying they say another. That's not available. So, exactly. So how do you make a decision? You don't. You say either throw this out or you're going to go back to trial with it. You know, I was, I was reading uh, information last night about the procedures for the Tenth Circuit, and it talked about how long m- m- their, their criminal cases mm-hmm. normally takes. 8.2 months. 8.2 months. For the appellate. 8.2 yep. months. Yep. Okay. Now, you tell me, is this not longer than 8.2 months? This is, like, what, approaching three, <laughs> three times longer? Okay. Yeah, I mean, because it's been over 20 months, uh, yeah. and, and, you know, and, and uh, yeah, they need to get their act together. Absolutely. And you know? somebody need to stop lying. And, you, and, you know, I spoke to, to Kressler as well, and, and his comment to me, which I thought was sort of a strange comment, was that the appellate judges are keenly aware of what's at stake here. Yeah, politically. What, what does that mean? Mm. That, many, that means here's some political jargon that I'm trying to use to get you to please get off my phone. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and he, he tried to tell me, he's like, Mr. Stewart, you're trying my nerves. I can't <laughs> take it. I said, I'm going to continue to try your nerves until we get some answers. I'm, uh, and, and then, then, and see, this is what gets me about, you know, people who work at either the courthouse, any of these, these uh, public um you know, jobs, they serve the public. Mm-hmm. So, but then they try to bully you if you don't know. So he, yep. tried, to, he tried to tell me, well, I'm going to hang up on you. I'm not going to talk to you about it anymore. And that is where I had to stop him. I said, no, no, now, wait a minute, Mr. Kressler, you work for me. All right. I'm a citizen. <laughs> I'm a taxpayer. You're going to stay on this phone until I tell you I'm satisfied with your answer. You're not going to threaten. You're not even going to threaten to That's hang up on right. me nonetheless actually hang up on me and get me off the phone. So he, he backed down, Mr. Stewart, I, I'm sorry if I seem impatient. It's just I don't know what to say. He's like, you know what to say. Tell the truth. That's if you it. tell the truth, everybody will be happy and everything will be okay. You know, so and tell then, the truth. And then I called back after you did, and I guess he, he was just done then. <laughs> uh, his nerves were shocked. He's like, can I please go get my coffee? <laughs> So on that, uh, you know, we, we're going to continue to push for the over 200 pages of, right. of uh, transcript because that directly ties to the exoneration release of uh, the IRP-6. That's right. The IRP-6 being Gary Walker, David Banks, Dave Zapolo, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, and Demetrius Harper. And we ask that you would join in in the fight to uh, free our brothers uh, and, and as Ethel always says, you know, a just cause is not just about the IRP-6. That's there right. are countless people that are uh, uh, wrongly incarcerated. We hear about it every day. Absolutely. And so, you know, this is about a fight to ensure that our justice system is reformed yes. and that we get the right thing going uh, across our nation. Yes. If you'd like more information about a just cause, you can find out about us at www.a-justcause.com. Again, www.a-justcause.com. We are in the process also of building up our donor base, so we ask that you would uh, click the Donate button there. Uh, You don't get the opportunity to take advantage of the the tax benefit yet because we're we're still uh, going through uh, a process of review on on, uh, our 501c3, Mm -hmm. but that should be completed here soon. Uh, Also, for programming uh, and scheduling information, go to ajcradio.com. AJCRadio.com. We ask you to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. 
Okay, for our regular listeners, you know what that means. That is our segment on things that make you go, hmm. We got a big thing that makes you go, hmm, today. Uh, you know, over the weekend, a, a Associated Press reporter uh, by the name of Donna Bryson, she uh, published an article about the IRP6 story. Now, you know, how long has she been working on this thing? Over a month, right? Oh, way over yes. a month. Yeah. yeah. Like a few months. Yeah, exactly. and, 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 you know, this is one of those things where, uh, and, and we're, we don't want to give much credence to her article, I mean, because her article really stinks. But It's not an article. No, it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we're going we're gonna, to uh, refute a lot of the things that she, that she talks about, and, and that's where the things that make you go, hmm, mm. comes from. You know, and, and, and uh, folks have heard us mention Olivia before, and Olivia does all the scheduling and, and program. Uh, uh, reaching out to potential guests for the program and so right, forth. Right. And Olivia reached out to uh, Donna Bryson and uh, explained to, to uh, Ms. Bryson what the IRP6 case was all about. And uh, Olivia said that, you know, well, you know, Bryson went down to the courthouse and was like totally intrigued and yeah. taken in by the sentencing statements of the guys. Exactly. And so she wanted to meet the families, meet the wives, meet the friends, and tell a story from a human side. Yes. And story goes and does everything but that. It is so slanted. Uh, she gives just enough of the facts to, to say that, that she touched on some just tip of the iceberg of the story. But then she doesn't tell the whole story. Right. So it, it, it's like, in my opinion, it's as if she wrote an article that made the guys look guilty as opposed to considering all of the evidence that would prove their innocence. Yeah, exactly. And even, you know, when you have a reporter that's supposed to be an investigative reporter, as she claims that she is, at least they write both sides of the story. There is There is no other side of the story here. This is like, even though... She interviewed about what twenty, thirty. Uh, well, all the wives, uh, yeah, all, yeah, the all wives, the kids, all the families. The fam- yeah. She interviewed uh, a just cause uh, members. A just cause members. She she interviewed uh, Sam and myself, who yeah. used to work at IRP Solutions, who are intimate with the business workings and the software. Absolutely. She interviewed all of us and still came back with just things that the prosecutor and the judge told her. And and what is crazy is that she she shows up at the protest uh-huh. that we had mm-hmm. uh, last month, and you know she says she was uh, she was out there, and even the reason for the protest she doesn't go into. She says we're trying to go into the background of the judge's uh, character. Right. No, we weren't. We're protesting the fact that the judge will not release over two hundred pages of a court transcript. Where that is not even in the article, which is. Uh, just fascinating to me exactly. and disgusting exactly. that how do you put one side of the article in there and not the other? It is totally a spin toward and, the uh, government's case. And even yeah. on, that, on that point, Cliff, mm. where it talks about, you know, well, the group just seems to be taking it to a personal tone and looking in, into the professional background of them. You know, the, the court documents show the connection of the judge, the Absolutely. prosecutor, the former yes. uh, uh, assistant U.S. attorney, Absolutely. the FBI agent. All that is part of a, a matter of record. That's Why right. not put the whole story the out whole there? Story. Exactly. You know, and then, and then when it comes into talking about uh, the – and she says that, uh, that, that the group claims mm-hmm. 
that passages, passages. Mm-hmm. of the of the trial transcript is missing. There's right. no claim. There's no claim. The judge Fact. said, the judge it, says in, it in open court that she's not not releasing these parts of the transcript. So there's there's no there's no claims and you you look at it and you say, how do you call yourself a reporter? Exactly. And uh and not deal with both sides of the story. That you the the slant toward the government is like, okay, Donna, did they did they pay you off? Yes, I'm did bad. they did they threaten your family? You know, what's going on here that the whole story is 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 toward the government and their position in the case. And uh on the phone we actually uh have our beloved Olivia. She wants to make a comment. Olivia, are you with us? I am. And you guys, thank you so much for covering this tonight. Um, I've been reaching out to Donna about the IRP6 story since August of last year. I provided her with every document that we possibly could to show her the proof of innocence that was already on record for the IRP6. And so I was very, very disappointed when her article came out and it showed nothing that uh, these guys were innocent. She knows that they're innocent because there is no way that you can see documents that's been on record from the FBI, Don Vilfer. You have, uh, and I remember when she talked to me one time, she said about the sentencing statements. She said, Olivia, I spent two hours at the courthouse, and those statements were so compelling by the IRP-6 I wanted to learn more. So then when you get an article and it demonstrates nothing about her uh, investigative uh, reporting, looking into the whys, what happened in this case, uh, it made me wonder what kind of reporter is she. Um, I even looked up today what makes a good investigative journalist. And it says they are always looking to tell the whys. They're wanting to expose the wrongdoings. Uh, they're always showing the documentation and data to back up to substantiate what's written in their article. We saw none of this in her article. And so I wanted to make sure that I came on today to say, you know, her article was a piece of trash. And I appreciate a just cause in the stand that you guys are taking and knowing that you're going to also refute uh, the lies that were put in that article and you guys will actually state the facts of the case. So I really appreciate that. And I just wanted you guys to know I always support you 100%. I support the IRP6, their families. I was very appalled that she would waste the times of the families, uh, hours she spent with them interviewing them. She even went to Gary Walker's home, speaking with the wives there, Yolanda and the other wives. And to think that you could go into their home, open up their wounds, and not report or even mention them in the article, how cruel. So I just wanted to say thank you, guys. We will continue to fight this fight. We will continue to stand and make sure that the truth is told about the IRP-6 in this case so that they will get the vindication that they deserve. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank, thank you. You. And you know, one thing, too, Cliff, is that it would be one thing if Olivia was providing uh, documentation that uh, that a just cause created mm-hmm. or that mm-hmm. uh, the IRP-6 created. Right. But these, this is documentation that, like she said, Cal Forensics, a, 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 a forensics analysis firm, yeah. created a, document, a review of the software. You got uh, affidavits from mm-hmm. retired agents. 
it's not information that that we just drummed up. It uh, it was information that was uh, from other parties. Exactly. Yes, and the one key thing that she says that you know she gave her all the facts, and a just cause always gives up all the facts. We have always told everybody these are not our opinions. These are not things that we say happen. We point you to where the facts are. We've always made them available. We've put everything online so that any person, mm-hmm. any member of the public can see them and can can look at them for themselves. And that's the same thing Donna did. Exactly. She went out there, looked at it for herself, and said if there's something going awry here. Mm-hmm. And then how she came to this conclusion to write this article is beyond me. Because when the government tells you to jump, you jump. That's in some people's case. Yep. Yep. And, some people <laughs> and that's did. what she did. Yep. And, and, you know, the thing is, like Olivia said, that uh, as far as interviewing the wives and the kids and so forth, you know, to me, that is one of the most cruel things when you have children and their fathers are incarcerated. And um, and then you ask them to share, you know, how they're feeling. And then you don't, you know, I mean, it, at least that's some way to at least get your feelings out mm-hmm, there. Mm hmm. And and you just make them relive that over and over and over oh, again, and and uh, it, it it is cruel, uh, and so you know that that's something that, that that's why we're we're addressing it. And so at any rate, uh, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about that, and uh, I think we're going to go go to the phones again in a moment after this break. But uh, this is Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. Our phone number this evening: three four seven eight three eight eight nine seven six. Three four seven eight three eight eight nine seven six. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. We know you care. Now it's time. Time to change the face of justice. Did you know that minority and youth participation in juries is extremely low to non-existent? The incidence of youth and minority offenders faced with trials have exploded. Youth and minorities are not being represented as they should be. We must represent for people to get fair trials. If you acquire a state ID or driver's license, it allows you to register to vote. And it allows you to become eligible for jury service. If you're 18, a U.S. citizen with a state ID or driver's license, and register to vote, you're eligible to be called for jury duty. If called and selected, make it your duty to serve. We can't get justice without you. Change. 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 Change the face of justice. Check your local county or state jury service website for further details. Get in and talk about it. I've got to go home. Oh, come on, Carrie. You're going to a new place. She wants to go home, right? Go. Whoa. You okay to drive? I'm fine. You sure? Relax. What's a few beers? If you don't stop your friend from drinking and driving, you're as good as dead. Drinking and driving can kill a friendship. Talk, news, politics, and inspiration. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof 
or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. I'm Sam Thurman with Cliff Stewart and Ethel Lopez of a Just Cause Coast to Coast. Join us here each week as we bring you compelling stories about the U.S. judicial system. We explore cases of wrongful convictions and our efforts to right the wrongs like the IRP6 case. And you don't want to miss our featured segment called Exoneree Moment, where exonerees share their stories. That's the Just Cause Coast to Coast. Sam Thurman, Cliff Stewart, and Ethel Lopez. Education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. Check AJCRadio.com for program schedules. Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. Our number, 347-838-8976, Before the break, uh, we were talking about this uh, article, if you want to call it that, that came out uh, by Associated Press, uh, Donna Bryson, and we are refuting a lot of the stuff that's in there. We're going to have a press release that's going to be coming out on that as well. But, Cliff, let's go to the phones and uh, take another comment about this. All righty. We have Rose. You have a comment about this Donna Bryson. Yes, I do, and thanks for giving me some time. Uh, I happen to be the mother of, of the IRP6, of all those guys. But as I listen to you tonight, I, I've seen some cruel things in the world. I've lived long enough to see some terrible things happen to good people. But when this woman, Donna Bryson, asked to meet with us and that she wanted to share the human side of what the people go through, the family, the friends, behind the scenes when a, wrong, when a family member or friend is wrongfully convicted, she wanted to show the human side of it. She is one of the most raw-faced liars I've ever seen in my life. I, I was the one who inquired, what does she want with this story? What does she want to do with it? And the reply to me was that I just want to show the human side, the pain, the, all the things that happened to the families as a result of wrongful convictions which those, those family members happen to be my daughter and my daughter-in-law and my grandchildren and all the other wives involved and, and the people for, the, for Just Cause, all of these people. We sat in a room with this woman uh, at our church, in fact, and she asked questions, and we saw the children being affected again because they hadn't gotten over it anyway. And they were crying, and and people were crying all over that room of the pain that they had felt as a result of this horrible, gross injustice that had taken place with our family and friends. And this woman sitting in the room, I don't know why she, how she even got a tear to come out of her eye, but when one of the mothers of Kendrick, Kendrick Barnes' mother began to speak about her pain of losing her son, uh, she started crying too. Now it makes me wonder, 
You know, should she not have been should she not have been given an Oscar for the for the for the person who had the best phony tears? Because she <laughs> sat in that room and heard the pain and all the agony of all these people. And I just couldn't believe that you could go out and write an article in behalf of the government after you said it was about us. She took up our time. She reopened our wounds. She made sure she poured salt in all of them. And people didn't even want to go through it again. We went through it because she said she wanted to at least show the human side of it when she's a liar. And so then when we get to, when we see this so-called article that she's done, she's the worst writer I think I've ever seen in my life to say that you've been a, journal, a journalist for all these years. It, 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 I mean, you could have got an uh, elementary child to write an article as that was written. It, it was the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. But for you to, for, but for you to join up with the government... After you lied to us and told us what, what did they pay you? Because I'm convinced that a lot of this garbage that's going on in our society of injustice and bringing in people to lie on people, somebody's getting a check somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so I was very, very much upset that she upset my daughter, made my daughter ill, in fact. I just, she was so sick. After reading it, I was concerned about her health. She has high blood pressure already. She said, Mama, I thought she wanted to tell our story. I thought she wanted to tell why, what we felt. I thought she wanted to talk about our pain. My grandson, Kyle, has seizures. Right after doing this period, his seizures started just coming back even more so. And I was concerned about his health. This woman has to be the most ruthless person on the planet. Because, come on, you didn't think about these children and what they've already been through and the families, the pain of losing somebody uh, that you know without a doubt that all the facts and documents show proof that they never did anything wrong. And now you're going to go back out there and try to paint them with an ugly brush. Well, to be honest, you didn't need to find a brush. Just use your face. It would have worked. I think it was terrible. And I think it is horrible when you find people that will take advantage of a bad situation with people and in their pain and their hurt, and you just jam the knife in as hard as you can, and when, a not, and when there's still not enough blood, then you twist it. Mm -hmm. I, think it I think it is horrible. May God give you your sure justice. He's the only one who can, who would do this. And this mm. is supposed to, uh, she's supposed to be a black reporter uh, who spent all this time in Africa. Did you learn anything, honey? It appears mm. you didn't learn anything. Then you mm. come back here and you put a knife in the heart of your sister, of, of their children. One day, God is always going to bring back to all of us when we do wrong he always brings it back around and in some way somehow we pay for the things that we've done wrong in this life i'm so glad we don't have to do the we don't have to have to be the one to, to try to pay anybody god does that himself and he always does it he always does it in a just manner you'll get what's coming to you for what you did to my family 
to our church members and all the things that went on unnecessary. Why didn't you just say, I'm here to try to make the government look good? And I said that even even early on. I said, I keep getting the feeling from this woman she's trying to find something good for the government. Mm-hmm. I, it's the most saddest thing I've ever seen. It's the worst betrayal that could happen to a person. And, mm-hmm. and, and I just want to say to her, to our audience, be careful who you let interview you. She's made us put up signs everywhere and saying, if somebody says I want to interview you, we got to have a sign, a sign consent form saying you will report what we say and mm-hmm. not take our words and twist them. She didn't even use any of our words. Nobody knows mm-hmm. nothing about us, only what a lying judge and prosecutor did. So I'm thankful for the opportunity to get a chance to speak to this issue. I think it's terrible. I think it's very painful for my family that you would do this. You have to be the most heartless, cruelest person in the world. But God will take care of that in his own time. Thank you for the time. Thank, Thank you. you very much. And, and you know what? Also on that point, uh, mm-hmm. when you talk about uh, the, the content and mm-hmm. the context mm-hmm. by which this article was written, uh, you know, uh, she even included something in here from uh, some lady named Angela Benton. Exactly. You know, and, and talking about uh, it, it's almost as if trying to give uh, the uh, you, you know, the, 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 basically what is the makeup of an entrepreneur? Mm-hmm. But when she went to the point of trying to describe the character of Gary Walker, mm-hmm. she doesn't know Gary Walker. Exactly. exactly. And how are you going to say that, uh, that uh, well, uh, it, it looks like he has this kind of character or mm-hmm. that kind of character. Mm-hmm. If you don't know the person and if you aren't a licensed psychologist, psychiatrist or, or whatever, right. And and you haven't had an in-depth uh, interaction with that person, you're not going to find out what that person, especially from the person who's writing this article, Absolutely. who probably presented you yeah. only uh, the, the 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 stuff that the uh, what they were accused of, exactly, and not providing them or not providing her with the substance that would show, well, yeah, they were mm-hmm. accused of this, mm-hmm. but then on the other hand, you got this information. Right. Well, they were accused of this, but then on the other hand, you got this information. But how do you interview somebody who, has, who don't even know these guys, who never even met these guys? That's right. I mean, about them, and then you do an interview. You go to the prison, and you spend an hour and a half with the CEO and the COO, and you print absolutely not nothing. one word, not one, I mean, nothing that they tell you? Nothing that they said. This is, you know, this isn't even high school reporting. That I don't know what this amazing. is. Yeah, she could have got any, th- this so-called uh, article could have been written without wasting our time. It, if she exactly. Wanted to, if she wanted to write an article saying, okay, um, there was a case down in the Springs and this is, this, is what the, yep. this is what the prosecutor and the judge said about it, she could have done that exactly. without, without spending our time. And like uh, Pastor Rose said, without opening wounds, of the children and of the wives that are exactly. that are going through this, and for her to take the facts mm-hmm. and the truth that you know, like we say, we give everybody anything you ask for. We give it to you in black and white, so you don't have to you don't have to wonder exactly what happened during the case. This is exactly what it is, and for her to do that, it's like, who are you? Exactly. Who are you really? Exactly. And what did you? What did you come into our life for? Your husband and your daughter better be asking you that question. Who are you? <laughs> well, more to come on that for sure. And like I said, you know, we're going to have a press release coming out on that. Our number this evening, 
347-838-8976. Joining us is our very special guest, Sydney Powell. And uh, Ms. Powell is an appellate attorney. Uh, and uh, it's her, her new book, Licensed to Lie. And, uh, you know, this I, just reading excerpts from it, I think we could just replace Enron with IRP. And, and exactly. uh, man, I, I tell you what, it's, I'm sure we're going to have an interesting conversation here. Miss mm-hmm. Powell, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be with you. It's an honor to have you. Definitely. Yeah. So uh, talk to us about Sidney Powell. I was looking at uh, just one thing on the, on the jacket, and it says, License to Lie reads like a cross between investigative journalism and courtroom drama. So uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, about your background, and then we'll dive into the book and, and, and uh, some of the excerpts that we pulled out and, and, and share some thoughts with you. Well, I actually started my career as an assistant U.S. attorney in San Antonio and prosecuting serious federal crimes, including some major drug trafficking operations. And I worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Antonio for about eight years. I did some criminal trial work, some civil trial work, and then wound up heading the appellate section for the Western District of Texas. Then I was asked by the U.S. Attorney in Dallas to start an appellate section for the Northern District of Texas, so I did that with a brief stint in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of Virginia in between, where I convicted a bankruptcy lawyer of bankruptcy fraud. And then I've been in private practice about uh, 20-some years now, having started practicing, of course, when I was only four years old. (laughs) (laughs) I like that, (laughs) Sid. Yep. Well, I tell you what. I have done over 500 federal appeals, resulting in about 185 published opinions, Uh, I would say 350 of them or so were criminal cases. But I've only taken a few criminal cases since I entered private practice. Five hundred federal appeals. Wow. That is incredible. That is incredible. So, Sydney, uh, looking at the book, uh, License to Lie, uh, what, what made you write the book? It's a book I hoped I would never have to write, but I did because... Even with my experience and knowledge working in the system, I was unable to get this egregious injustice completely corrected. And I think people need to know from the inside out how it can work against them and how important it is for prosecutors to be required to produce evidence that is favorable to a defendant at the earliest possible time in any given case. Wow. You're, hey, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, in, in your book, Sydney, you were talking about um, these three, I believe there were appellate judges that you knew. Who, oh, yes. Who, I mean, what did, what, what did you feel when you thought that they were going to do the right thing and they ended up coming back doing something totally different than what you, you, you know was right? Uh, it broke my heart. I mean, I really don't know any other way to put it. It, it really broke my heart. And sometimes even even good people, you know, make mistakes or do the wrong things for what they think are the right reasons. But I know that the ultimate decision we talk about in the book was wrong, 
as were many of the other decisions of the Fifth Circuit in the Enron-related cases. Um, you know, it just, it's very hard to overturn a criminal conviction, and a lot of judges have lost sight of individual rights, or they get tired or jaded or overworked. I mean, their caseload is, is significant. But I think, I think a lot of it is, is, you know, there's been a tendency in recent years to appoint judges to the bench very early in their careers. Wow. And actually, actually one of the best Fifth, Fifth Circuit judges I know now is one of the youngest. So I don't want to say never appoint a young judge, but I think there comes a time when people have been on the bench so long that they, they forget, they lose touch with reality, they lose touch with what that a case is somebody's life. I mean, I've always told my clients that it's not my case, it's their case and their life. Right, right. And I, I, I wanted the book to show the human impact that litigation has on individuals, particularly criminal litigation. I mean, civil litigation takes an enormous toll also. Anybody who's even been through a divorce knows that. But criminal litigation, where your life is completely turned upside down, absolutely devastated, and you are owned by the government from the time you're indicted on, is just can be life-shattering. Yes, and, and sitting, you know, you say that looking at this and seeing that these egregious things that happen with these judges, that it, it breaks your heart. And, you know, a lot of times on, on our show here, we, we say that uh, one, of the, one of the reasons or one of the ways to alleviate uh, these type of egregious acts, and, and, you know, if they're done on purpose, if, if a prosecutor or a judge says, I have this information in my hand, I don't deliver it, or I have this information um, and and I, I treat it like it doesn't matter, and I know it's gonna it's gonna affect someone's life. It's gonna end up putting someone in prison. So we always say that the prosecutors should be held accountable on a you know on a personal level. That if they do something, then knowingly has someone put in in prison, um, that they should they should pay for that. In the same way with a judge, and and if if we can get your comment on that statement, and also what do you think? Um, is is a is would be a major change to to alleviate these type of practices in our uh, in our judicial system. Well, there are a lot of things that could be done to right now even to alleviate some of these practices in the judicial system. I firmly agree with you that individual prosecutors, particularly anyone who has intentionally withheld exculpatory evidence, which I have no doubt that some of the prosecutors I talk about in the book did. They should be disbarred, and they should be investigated criminally for subornation of perjury, um, obstruction of justice. I mean, there are any number of criminal offenses that apply against a state or should apply against a state or federal prosecutor who deliberately hides evidence. I mean, when somebody outside the system does it, it is called obstruction of justice or subornation of perjury. Mm-hmm. And it, we have just got to stop giving these people literally a license to stand there and lie. Exactly. As for things, as for things that can be done immediately, every judge, whether he be a state court judge or a federal judge, could immediately, as soon as a criminal case is docketed in his courtroom, enter a Brady order 
requiring compliance with Brady and set a deadline by which the government is supposed to give the defendant all Brady evidence. They can also require that the defendant receive the actual documents and never allow a summary unless there's a problem with, uh, you know, international or national security, national defense, highly classified information, that kind of thing. But in most criminal cases, or the protection of an informant sometimes in some of the violent crime cases. Mm-hmm. But in, in most cases, a summary is woefully insufficient and should not be allowed to substitute for the actual documents of Brady. Yeah, and it, it was... No, go ahead, finish your thought. I was just going to make sure people understood that Brady is a shorthand reference for evidence that is favorable and material to the defendant. We also need to take, actually, the materiality inquiry out of the Brady standard. Prosecutors should be required to produce evidence if it's favorable to the defendant. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Only, only, only the defense can really decide <laughs> what is material to the defense, and a judge can't, and the prosecutor certainly can't. Yeah. Uh, Sydney, hold that thought. We're going to come back, and we're going to talk to Sydney Powell, appellate attorney out of Dallas, Texas about her book, License to Lie. Uh, There's a lot of good stuff in that book, and uh, I'm glad we got a chance to preview it. We'll talk about when it's going to, uh, I think it's hitting the shelves this, this month, in right? In May. May. I think oh, in May. May? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk to Sydney about that a little bit more. Our number this evening, if you have a question for Ms. Sydney Powell, is 347-838-8976, 347-838-8976. This is a Just Cause Coast to Coast where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. These are the voices that prisoners in solitary confinement hear every day. Out of Arizona's total of 2,076 prisoners held in solitary, 30% are taking prescription medication to deal with mental illnesses, and 11% have diagnosed schizophrenia. Experts report that the extreme and prolonged isolation exasperates pre-existing conditions and appears to even cause mental illness in prisoners who were not previously ill. While prisoners deserve punishment, Arizona can do better. We need to change the solitary confinement rules. Unlike any other states, Arizona prisoners are held in 8 by 10 cells for at least 23 hours a day with no windows and virtually no human interaction. Perhaps the best way to fix solitary confinement so it strikes a balance between punishment and humanity is to decrease the size of solitary units. Colorado, Texas, Mississippi, and Illinois have decreased the size of their units, only admitting prisoners who need the rehabilitating experience and have saved over $6 million without compromising prison safety. A study produced in Colorado reported that after decreasing the number of solitary units, prisoners experienced an improvement in overall mental health of the confined inmate population. How can we do this? We need to reach out to Director of Corrections Charles L. Ryan, asking him to decrease the number of solitary units. Solitary confinement needs to remain a place for punishment and behavior change, but it can also be a place of innovation and rebuilding.
are standing trial for crimes they didn't commit. Today, innocent Americans are writing for help from a prison cell. Today, hundreds of Americans have been exonerated of crimes they didn't commit. Researchers believe that at least 40,000 innocent Americans still sit behind bars. For them, the answers do not come easy. A just cause seeks true balance and accountability in the judicial process, ensuring that innocent men and women are not convicted and sentenced to prison for trivial, obscure acts that are otherwise not seen as crimes. For more information on how a just cause may help you or how you can get involved to stop over-criminalization of innocent Americans, visit www.a-justcause.com or call 855-529-4252. That's 855-529-4252. Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman with Ethel Lopez and Cliff Stewart. Our phone number this evening, 347-838-8976, 347-838-8976. To all of our listeners out there, thank you very much for taking time to spend with us this evening. And we ask that uh, you go out and support IRP6. Uh, go out to change.org. Please sign the petition that's out there. Do a search on IRP6, and uh, we're trying to get over 200 pages of a transcript released to support uh, the appellate process uh, of the IRP6. IRP6 being Gary Walker, David Banks, Dave Zapolo, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, and Demetrius Harper. Joining us this evening, our very special guest, appellate attorney, uh, and now author. I don't know if you've written any books before this one, but uh, Sydney Powell, and we're talking about her book entitled License to Lie. Sydney, again, welcome to the program. Thank you. So, Sydney, got a quick question for you. Uh, we got this question in during the break, and uh, it, it, it's, it centers on it, dealing with evidence, of course, but it, it talks about uh, in, in the light most favorable to the government. Now, when when you're looking at a situation and, and that, that caveat is always cast out there in the light most favorable to the government, can a person really get a fair trial, especially when you're looking at uh, discovery and, and what to allow in as evidence, what should be blocked from evidence? You know, what does that mean uh, when, you, when we're talking about that? In the light most favorable to the government is the sufficiency of evidence calculus that I believe the Supreme Court established in a case called Glasser versus United States. So it's routinely cited by the government when a defendant challenges the sufficiency of the evidence against him. 
but it should not apply, uh, for example, on a motion for new trial when evidence has been excluded or to evidence evidentiary issues when evidence was not allowed in and it has no bearing on the Brady inquiry specifically. So if exculpatory evidence was withheld, um, Brady is not a sufficiency inquiry at all. So it just simply doesn't apply. So is that something that, and just trying to understand it, is, is that something that applies during the, uh, when a trial or when a case is first being heard, or is that something that you typically hear uh, during an appellate process? It's something or, you hear during an appellate process and only really applies that I can think of or is most used anyway when a defendant says the evidence was insufficient to sustain the conviction against him. And that's called a, a, a attack on the sufficiency of the evidence to support the conviction. And if that attack is made then, and the government prevailed at trial and got a conviction, obviously, then the Court of Appeals would review the evidence against the defendant in the light most favorable to the government. But that includes only evidence that was actually admissible against him and evidence that was admitted. It doesn't have anything to do with the question of whether exculpatory evidence was wrongly ex excluded or suppressed or withheld. Now, that's very interesting, uh, mm -hmm. Sydney, because we we looked at uh, some of the hearings in the in the case that I just called is looking at the uh, IRP six case, and even during some of the um, some of the pretrial hearings, we have the judge, Judge Christine Arguello, is using um, that term basically to uphold uh, you know evidence that that the prosecutor is trying to bring in and basically using that statute saying that that evidence is to be allowed because it's in the light most favorable to the government even though the defense is uh is refuting that you know that those type of things can be allowed or that ev that their evidence uh would not be allowed and and she basically you know says she wasn't going to allow uh, evidence that they were trying to get brought in during the during some of the hearings, saying, "Well, we have to look at the whole case in the light most favorable to the government." How does that apply uh, pre-trial or even during trial if a judge tries to use that statute? Uh, it's not a statute; it's a Supreme Court decision. As okay. far as I know, it hasn't it hasn't been uh, codified. But it's been a long time since I've looked at any sort of criminal sufficiency of the evidence issue. Um, and I can't really comment without reading, you know, seeing what the transcript said and what the issue was. I mean, offhand, I'm no criminal issues popping into mind to which that standard would be applied during the trial or before the trial. But that doesn't mean I'm not missing something on that point. You had asked right. earlier about things that could be done right now to... Uh, improve the situation. There are two pieces of uh, sorry, two pieces of legislation pending in Congress: the Fairness and Disclosure of Evidence Act, and also a bill to have an independent uh, counsel or sort of outside counsel appointed with oversight power over the Department of Justice and complaints against the Department of Justice. And so, everyone listening to this can contact their congressmen and senators 
and urge passage of the Fairness and Disclosure of Evidence Act. It's been languishing since March 15, 2012, when it was introduced by a bipartisan group of senators, and it has widespread support across the country. I think the only entity that opposes it is the Department of Justice, which is rather <laughs> ironic. Yeah, they're, yes. they're quite ironic. It's like, don't don't hold our feet to the fire is is basically the statement they're making. I right. think that else, and and I think the other one that you're talking about isn't it uh, like the Inspector General Act or something like that? To, the, yes, the one to expand that to include coverage of the Department of Justice. Lobbyists yeah. are already trying to water that down. I mean, the, an Inspector General should have mandatory authority to review complaints filed against the Department of Justice. I think it's already been watered down to discretionary authority. Wow. But there are, there are write-ups on my blog about both of those pieces of legislation, and the blog is www.seeking-justice.org, and people can subscribe for updates. I don't post very often. Uh, we try to post a couple of times a week, but we always try to at least catch things related to prosecutorial misconduct. Awesome. I'm glad somebody's doing that. So, Sydney, I, I was looking at... Uh, on page 61 of your book, and, and this is uh, when I read this passage, uh, and I, I, I mentioned at the top of the segment with you that there are several things in here that just jump out, and it's like uh, you could just replace the, the names of the, of the players, and this could apply even in the IRP uh, case. On page 61, you say that prosecutors said it didn't matter that none of the defendants personally profited from this transaction. Mm. And it didn't matter that none engaged in any conduct that they thought was unlawful. Does that sound familiar, Cliff? Yes, that sounds very familiar. Sounds like uh, pages pulled out of the transcript of the IRP6 case. And, and wow. Sydney, it, absolutely, I mean, in the court transcript, the assistant U.S. attorney, Matthew Kirsch, stands before the jury and he says that no one got rich in this case. So, you know, it, it's slightly different words, but the, the same context. Uh, and so he says, no one got rich in, 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 this, in this case, but we're going to show, you know, X, Y, Z. And then all the things that he began to describe had nothing to do with justifying the, the charges of mail and wire fraud. It, it was as if, okay, we are just going to take a case that involves debt and we're going to twist and turn this thing every way possible mm-hmm. to, uh, to, to criminalize it and, and, uh, and, and make you come back with a, with a guilty verdict. And along the way, we're not going to share any evidence with you. Exactly. And we're not going to let expert witnesses testify. And we're not going to give you forensics evidence. I mean, it's just a myriad of, of, of uh, things that, that happened in this particular case. So it's very interesting that the way that you wrote this, uh, Sydney. Yes, I'm afraid it's going to hit home with a lot of people. And, you know, you were in your book also, you were talking about that, um, that when the judge was given um, the jury instructions and he, rem- he eliminated uh, criminal intent. <laughs> yes, that happened oh, okay. in the Arthur Anderson case also. And, you know, Arthur Anderson was destroyed along with 85,000 jobs by the first act of the Enron Task Force, only to be reversed nine to nothing later by the Supreme Court for how absolutely little intent the jury instructions contained or required. Wow. And, and how, do, how, how do you, how does a judge say, okay, 
you're going after a conspiracy charge, but you don't have to show that they intended to commit conspiracy, that they intended to commit a crime. You just have to show that they did it. Well, if there is no intent, then, I mean, where does the whole idea come from? And that, that's the thing that gets me about, you know, arbitrary jury instructions, these arbitrary uh, opening and closing arguments uh, by, by prosecutors. It's, it's pretty much they say, well, whoever has the best last word wins the case, no matter what the evidence is, and they're allowed to do these things. And it's um, looking at this case, at, at your book, and paralleling the IRP6 case, and you, you look at just the way that uh, these prosecutors, and, and we'll say some of the prosecutors, obviously all of them mm-hmm. are not out just to destroy people's lives. Well, but, Sydney survived. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, you, you look at it and you say, where, where are the rest of the prosecutors like yourself, Sydney, that are crying out against the system and saying, hey, we need to do something, just like you say, you know, where a judge needs to immediately during trial put it in writing, we are going to uphold the Brady Act, you're going to, you're going to give any exculpatory evidence that you have to the defense immediately. That's not going to be a question. It's not going to be a, a topic of discussion. You're just going to do it, or you're going to be, or you're going to be found that, you're, uh, that, that, that basically you're, you're under prosecutorial misconduct. So where are the rest of the uh, you know, assistant U.S. attorneys, former uh, U.S. attorneys, that are, are crying out, saying, let's fix this, let's do something, so that we aren't arbitrarily locking our, our citizens in prison for no particular, like, like uh, Eric Holder said, no good law enforcement reason. There's no crime that's been committed, right. but we're locking people up for nothing. Over 200 former judges, assistant U.S. attorneys, U.S. attorneys, and uh, other high-ranking Justice Department officials signed the call for reform that was given to Congress on March 15, 2012, by the Constitution Project, a bipartisan group in D.C. So they are out there, and they are supporting the Fairness and Disclosure of Evidence Act. Mm-hmm. And still, it's languishing in Congress because the Department wow. of Justice, and, including and that, Eric Holder, opposes it. Right. That and just Eric, re- Eric Holder did nothing, of course, in response to our repeated entreaties to him on the Brown case and the Merrill yeah, Lynch like, executives in the Enron litigation. Just like he's not doing anything else with any of the other cases. I, I heard him today. You know, he was talking about the uh, Fast and Furious case. And he's he's on there reprimanding the people who are who are questioning him, and the fact that that he let all this happen. He's he's reprimanding them, telling them, you know, not to go there. Don't assume that that he doesn't care or that he's taking things lightly. It's like, but you have to do something. And and just like you say, Sydney, with 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 these things on the book, Eric Holder will not lift a finger to. To make anything solid, he comes out, and we say it often on this show, he comes out, he says these nice, pretty words, and then he goes back and sits down and does absolutely nothing. And it gets frustrating as a citizen. It gets frustrating as a member of an advocacy group. And I know it has to get frustrating to you to know that you have all these former um, uh, U.S. attorneys, these former judges, 
who have said, I will put my name on the line. I will tell you that there are, there are purpose, purposeful, egregious acts happening in courtrooms every day in the U.S. People are going to prison for nothing, and we need to get something on the books that writes this wrong. And the Justice Department, and, and the, they have a name that they uphold justice, but their actions are exactly the opposite. Well, I think yes, Cliff, uh, we've, there's a chapter in my book called the Department of Injustice, and uh, one of the uh, endorsers of the book, Bill Hodes, refers to it as the now ironically named Department of Justice. It's, oh, wow. it's very sad, and there, there's bipartisan blame for the problems there. It didn't just start when Holder became Attorney General. It's been going on for a while. The Department of Justice is way over-politicized. And it should not be. It should be the group that enforces the law correctly, right. regardless of political party or any other identifying factor other than the facts of the case. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, Sydney, we're going to take one more break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to uh, get some closing thoughts from you. And just to kind of uh, wrap up what you guys were just talking about uh, before we go to this break, even on, on the jacket of, of Sydney's book, mm-hmm. as you see there, it says, when the guardians of justice become the perpetrators of injustice. I mean, that just sums that's up. Which, right. That's a sad summary uh, of, yep. of the state of affairs, but it's absolutely true. true. It is. So we'll be back with uh, appellate attorney Sidney Powell here in a moment after this break. This is A Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I wanted to be in the military since I was was a kid. I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs hit my vehicle. And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital and said I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. you got to find that link with somebody that'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. It's for the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well, because they're not here with their families.
idea. They got viable software, but you compare them to those with nothing to offer. Prosecuted by the attorney's office. Before the FBI got to start investigating charges. Skip the steps, get in the process. Even boring the testimony of Andrew Alvarez. Witness, you can tell why any staffing company that can do with the restroom. Credit check, which stick out their neck. If there was no prospect, they could collect. When they're real in the net, it all relates to Harvey Silver's late statements about the vagueness of federal law, judicial chaos, A underscore just cause. Read at rp6.org, 347-205-9620, just law. It's just us, but we don't got to just talk. We can just march through the courts for the cause with one voice and just free them all. Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman with Cliff Stewart and Ethel Lopez. And uh, just before coming out of that break, you heard the tune from Dallas Burgess, the IRP6 anthem. And, uh, you know, that's a song that uh, is a favorite by a lot of the listeners. And so we always have to give a shout-out to Dallas for that song, uh, recognizing the situation with the IRP6 and to draw attention to that case, the IRP6 being Gary Walker, David Banks, Dave Zapolo, Kendrick Barnes, Clint Stewart, and Demetrius Harper. And again, we ask that you go out to change.org and sign the petition uh, that's regarding over 200 pages of transcript that's missing uh, that uh, is very critical to the appeal of the other guys. And then if you like more information about the IRP6 case, Go to freetheirp6.org, freetheirp6.org. But again, most importantly, go to change.org. Please sign the petition and put in a comment out there as to why you signed it. Let's go back and get some uh, closing thoughts from our uh, special guest, Sidney Powell, appellate attorney and uh, author of the book, License to Lie. 
And Cliff, I believe you have a question uh, for Sydney. Yes, Sydney. Um, I guess uh, one last question. As far as, you know, Sam just was asking about, you know, people going out to change.org. We have a petition that's uh, trying to get Attorney General Eric Holder to do an investigation on why this 200 pages of missing transcript is not available for the defendants in the IRP6 case. So with that being said, and you being a, um, you know, an appellate attorney, can you talk to us basically about a situation like that? If you saw a situation where, you know, you say, hey, I got, I got everything, I got what's supposed to be the transcript, come to find out there's a chunk of it missing, 200 pages, and in those 200 pages the defense is, um, you know, claiming that the judge violated their Fifth Amendment right. The judge says no such thing ever happened. What would you be looking at as far as the turnaround on that from the appeals judges, as far as that process? Mm -hmm. What timeline uh, would we or should we be looking at with that type of uh, situation on the table? Well, in the Fifth Circuit, you wouldn't have 200 pages of missing transcript because the Fifth Circuit withholds a court reporter's pay if they don't timely produce all the transcript. Wow. Yeah, and they have, uh, you know, I think even at least threatened, if not actually put a court reporter in incarceration until the transcript was produced. That works. I don't understand. Yeah, I don't understand, first of all, how there is a case where there's actually, you know, pages of transcript missing. That just should not happen. And if it is confirmed and proven that there are 200 pages of transcript missing, the defendant should get a new trial just for that, and they damn sure shouldn't be in prison while huh. that transcript is missing. Well, that, well here, here, here's news for you, Sydney, is the, the fact that, uh, that over 200 pages, the judge actually... Uh, is having dialogue with the court reporter over the discussion about whether or not this transcript is going to be released to the defendants. Now, our take is that uh, she probably didn't realize that 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 discussion was still in the transcript. Yes, because she is saying, she's asking the court reporter, um, after uh, after the judge basically tells one of the, tells the defendants, one of you are going to have to get on the stand or I'll close your case for you. They come back and say, we want the transcript where, where we had this sidebar and you made this statement. The judge says, I did not make this statement. They go back and forth a couple times. The defendant says, you did make it and we want the transcript that proves it. The judge asked the court reporter, okay, well, how much of that transcript, how, how many pages are we talking about that are not available? And the court reporter says over 200 pages, and this is in the transcript, yeah. clearly, over 200 over pages. 200. The judge makes a statement, okay, well, I don't see the need, I don't see where you need that to be uh, delivered right away. And then it just basically tells them, your, uh, yeah, here, here, here it goes. It, it, this is, quote, Judge Arguello states, over 200 pages for no purpose that I can see that will be served by having that at this time. I'm not going to have it expedited. An unedited version of the transcript delivered to the defendants concludes Arguello. Now, you have a judge saying, I know there's over 200 pages missing, but I don't see any reason, uh, anything that can be served by you having that at this time. I'm not going to have it be expedited. And still have not 
told the court reporter to release it. And these men have been in prison for over 20 months, and this is one of the things on the table on appeal. And the appellate court has, has, uh, has had it since May. The judges have returned it back to Denver, and supposedly it's with a writing judge since May, a year. And we're trying to figure out what, what could be the holdup how could the timeline be extended when you have over 200 pages of missing transcript? And like, like you said, they definitely shouldn't be in prison. And at the very least, if it's not thrown out, they should have a new trial granted immediately. That is absolutely bizarre in a federal case. Absolutely bizarre. Mm. There's a lot of bizarre stuff in this case. And and yeah. you saying what that what year was it prosecuted in? It was prosecuted in 2011. Mm-hmm. And who was uh, attorney, acting attorney, or the attorney general in charge of the criminal division of the Justice Department at the time? John, John Walsh in Denver, Colorado, and prosecuted by Assistant U.S. Attorney Matthew mm-hmm. Kirsch, presided over by Judge Christine Arguello of the 10th Circuit. And the fact, uh, Sydney, that you say that that is bizarre leaves me beyond speechless. Yeah, oh. Because we have been on a campaign, we have been in a battle, we have been in a, a fight, a battle royale to try to get someone to listen to the fact that there are over 200 pages of transcript missing. Yeah. Why won't anybody come to the defense of these six men who these six men exactly. who have been in prison for almost two years and th- that was one of the things we were talking about to Sydney at the beginning of the show when when you know and I was talking about having called um, one of the appellate judges you know and 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 his judicial assistant had assured me this this case has been back in in Denver since May of, of 2013 and and nobody wants to give us any information, wants to tell us anything. They, they, they are giving us the run around, asking us, you know, how did we get the numbers for the appellate judges? That's not even out there. And why are you, you know, just, just everything except the decision on this case. Well, the Court of Appeals judges can't talk about cases that they're working on. Yeah. But um, this whole situation definitely sounds very unusual. I mean, in 500 federal appeals, I've never failed to get the complete transcript. And I always tell the court reporter if the judge's lips are moving, I want it in writing. I don't care whether it's a pretrial hearing or jury instructions or whatever. If the judge is in the courtroom, everything is to be recorded. Absolutely. Uh, Sometimes you have to tell the court reporter that because they will, unless they're specifically instructed, not always put everything on the record, but... The judge came case, back. We always uh-huh. put everything on the record. Right. The judge I, had know, come I, back. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I obviously can't give you legal advice in a case I haven't seen and don't have the facts in front of me, but the, the Tenth Circuit should do something about this and do something soon. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And usually it takes about a year from the time a notice of appeal is filed until a decision is rendered in a in the U.S. Courts of Appeals. I don't know the specific schedule to the Tenth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit runs pretty close to a year on a regular basis. 
sometimes longer in a bigger or more complicated case. Right. But they do try to be efficient in, in rendering decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this case has been, uh, it's been, oh, what, 20, 20? 23 months, yeah. 23 months that, that they've, that, you know, since the appeal went in. The um, notice of appeal. Yeah, 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 the notice of appeal. And the, the, with the 200 pages of missing transcript, I mean, it is so, it is so sickening to say that we're part of a justice system that can withhold transcript. And, and, you know, you say that the, uh, you know, that you always, in your cases, ensure telling the, the uh, court reporter, hey, if the judge's lips are, are moving, if we're mm-hmm. in court, you're writing down everything that's said. Exactly. And besides that, you have the Court Reporters Act that basically gives them that instruction anyway. Exactly. You're to record everything that you can and deliver it to the public in a timely manner. And <laughs> the fact that the judge is not, uh, pushing the court reporter right. to deliver this right. is, I mean, it is absolutely sick. And, and just to jump in there right quick too, Sydney, and that's one of that's that's one of the uh, campaigns that a Just Cause has going on to Eric Holder's office, a phone uh, phone calling campaign to his office. We had letter writing, faxing, emails, everything, telling him, you know, what's going on here. You know, we're told that Eric Holder is the one that needs to investigate that and tell, you know, contact John Washington, ask him what is going on down there. You know, for a year and a half, we have been trying to reach Eric Holder's office, and he has not responded whatsoever on what's going on with this. That is, yes, this he is, never responded to us either. It's, it's exactly. an outrage, and I guarantee you Office of Professional Responsibility inside the Justice Department hasn't either. You, I would you, encourage you to... Yeah, I would encourage you to send whatever information you've got to Senator Lisa Murkowski and also members of the Senate Judiciary Committee that oversee the Department of Justice in support of their efforts to get the Fairness and Disclosure of Evidence Act passed and also the Inspector General to cover the Department of Justice. I mean, this is precisely the kind of thing that should never happen. Wow. Well, uh, Sydney, we really appreciate you taking time out of your evening to share with us and talk to us about uh, your book, License to Lie. Uh, so uh, very quickly, uh, where, uh, when is the book due out? Where can uh, our listeners find it? And, and give it should a, be on a, bookshelves by, by May 1st, and it can be pre-ordered now through Amazon, IndieBound, Barnes & Noble, any of the usual outlets, and also on my website at licensetolie.com. And I would also encourage people to look at resources and websites for the Innocence Project, the constitutionproject.org, and the Center for Prosecutorial Integrity is a new group that is now creating a database of prosecutorial misconduct in various cases, and I would encourage you to send your information to them as well. Thanks. Okay. So Thank you the, very much. The project on government oversight found over 600 violations by prosecutors recently. Wow. Wow. Hey, hey you, yeah. you got any? More, you got any more? Throw them out there. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Most of those are on my blog. So check out seeking-justice.org and subscribe to updates. Okay, seeking-justice.org, and that's Sydney Powell. And we're going to post that on our website as well. And, uh, Cliff, you got any other comments for Sydney before we let her go? 
No, I just want to say, Sydney, we appreciate uh, you coming on. You have left me personally flabbergasted, yeah, yeah. but uh, I am I am glad for the information, and it's good to it's good to see someone who is a former prosecutor who's doing the right thing. I Absolutely. Thanks so much, Sydney, and thanks. Thank you all, and keep up your good work too. Thanks, everyone deserves a level playing field. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank Absolutely. you so much. Okay, that's Sydney Powell, uh, our special guest this evening, uh, appellate attorney out of Dallas, Texas, and uh, her new book coming out in May entitled License to Lie. Next, let's go to our next segment. It's uh, our profile of the wrongfully convicted. So for this evening, our profile of the wrongfully convicted is that of Nick Yaris. And so, Cliff, do we have Nick on the phone? Nicholas? Yes, we do. Are you there, sir? Hello, I'm Long Beach. How are you, gentlemen? I am doing great, doing great, uh, and, and uh, Long Beach, California, huh? Yes, sir. I just moved here from England. I was living in England the last nine years. Um, but before I go to that, I would like to say uh, what a shock it is that we actually have to have a legislation, a proposed bill for fairness and justice. I, I, ne- I That just blew me away, gentlemen. When I heard that we have to have a reminder of what justice is supposed to be. I was shocked to hear uh, Sidney Powell say that, and I'm devastated that we actually have to have come up with a proposal on how to be fair in our justice system. Isn't that it's the truth? True. Isn't that the truth? And, you know, okay, uh, Nick, so, so, you know, we're, we're glad to have you on the program and, and understand that, and we're going to have you, you share your story. I know you spent, what, 22, 23 years in prison for a, a crime uh, that you did not commit. And when I that saw your correct, um, yes, when I saw your um, thank you. I can do this. I do go, go ahead, Nick. No, go ahead, Nick. Um, in 1982, I was uh, convicted and sentenced to die for the rape and murder of Linda May Craig, a crime that happened in December of 1981, six months before that. I was originally arrested in the city of Chester in 1981 in December of that year by a patrolman who accused me of attempted murder. While I was in prison, I made up a stupid story from a newspaper account of this murder about Mrs. Craig. I told the authorities I knew about the crime and tried to barter my freedom, and then when the police found out I was lying, they turned around and manufactured a case against me using a prisoner who had burglarized the prosecutor's home from Delaware County. I was put on trial early April of 1982 for the attempted murder of the patrolman from the city of Chester, and after only 20 minutes of deliberation, I was not found not guilty by a jury. This made the prosecutor in the area so enraged that he then sought the death penalty the next week. He was allowed to remain on the case. The same judge tried me for the attempted murder. And in the newspaper, I was made folly of because you have to understand, I was accused of a psychological murder of going out and raping and murdering a, a woman who bore a, a likeness to my girlfriend of the time. So I wasn't just trounced in the judicial system for a criminal act of murder. I was also being trounced in the concept of the uh, mental derelict. And to degrade me further, I had everything thrown against me because President Reagan had just been shot by a mental patient. So after a three-day trial in June of 1982, I was sentenced to death plus 30 years after the jury took time out to go out and have a uh, lunch with, uh, I mean dinner, sorry, and then they ended up having dessert during the penalty phase. 
So I, at the age of 20, was sentenced to death by a jury who was so callous that they didn't care about what they were doing, so much so that they were eager to get out of there after only three days of a trial to go home and celebrate the 4th of July holiday. I was sent to Huntington Prison, and I spent the next 12 years in the hardest prison ever in America. I spent the first two years in complete silence and was degraded by many acts of beatings because I broke that silence rule. I went through a great deal. I escaped from prison in 1985. I was on the FBI's most wanted list for 25 days, and I handed myself back in. I then became the first prisoner on death row to seek DNA testing in February of 1988, only to be cheated out of it for 15 agonizing years. At the end, I was sick and dying in 2002 with hepatitis C given to me after my teeth had been broken out by the guards during a beating. So I was dying of an illness, but yet I had eloquently risen to the point where I had killed off the person that I went to prison being. That was the whole contest, gentlemen. I was going to kill off the junkie, thief, and liar that I was all because it was my only answer to someone who was murdering me for something I didn't do. So I wrote a letter to Judge James Giles in Philadelphia, and I asked to be executed for the crime that I didn't do because I was dying of an illness after I had made myself so accepted as a human being. I no longer looked at myself with disgust for the failed life I had because I didn't do that to myself. You see, when I was a seven-year-old boy, someone attacked me and beat my head and would have rock and raped me and turned me into this mess of a human being. And it was only through the blessing of being put in solitary confinement with 23 years that I found a beautiful poise and ability to gravitate towards this beautiful self that I could come to peace with. So I asked to be executed in 2002, and lo and behold, Judge Giles ordered the remaining DNA testing be finally done, and after 15 agonizing years of waiting, three separate DNA testing proved me innocent in July of 2003. So it Nick, took them Nick, eight let, months Nick, to release me. Nick, let me jump sorry, in there for a second. Yeah, so yes, let, let's, let's go back to, to, uh, to something here. Uh, you indicated that, and, and that you escaped. I mean, I, when you yes, when you sir. saw that in 1985, okay. I escaped from death row, and and I ended up in Florida. I didn't now, realize did, that they were swing, just. How did you swing that? How did you swing that? I was being transported to court, and I was in the the coldest night of the year, February 15th, 1985, and the officers taking me to court stopped to use a restroom, and one of them went back to the car to have a cigarette, and the other one was standing there. And he had to use the urinal after I did, and he left me alone to run back to the old man at the car who pulled his gun out and fired two shots without saying anything. So I've just turned around and ran, and they chased me for five and a half hours with helicopters. I've, oh, my God. The things that I did to my body being chased by a helicopter for four hours, it was unbelievable. I, I still, to this day, can't believe I survived the things I did. I've been shot, stabbed, strangled, run over by a car. I hung myself in prison in agony. The guard cut me down, telling me he wanted to keep me around just to keep me alive for the ride. And I documented all this beautifully in my first book, Seven Days to Live, and it's now on release. And I'm so happy that all that misery didn't mean anything because in the last few months I came here to Los Angeles. I'm now turning my first book into a major motion picture. I have a film out in Sundance at a documentary film festival called Yaris. And I'm happy to be in love and alive and celebrating my 10 years of freedom. I came back to America after nine years in England and got married on January 16th. And 
I've, I've done that, gentlemen. I, I, I've taken all that misery and turned it into the most positive love story I can imagine. That's my only answer to what they did to me. And, you know, Nick, I, uh, uh, just last week, as a matter of fact, I, I sat down and I viewed a documentary entitled After Innocence. With and, me in it. Yes, sir. Yep. And so when I saw, the, you know, your guest profile, and, and actually when I saw your name, I thought, Nick Yaris, I think I just saw him in, uh, in After Innocence. And, uh, you know, when you first got out, you were a one-man campaign yeah, out there. Yeah, I gave that up because I almost burnt down. What was that again? Thurman, it was so hard on me. I almost burned out because survivor's guilt's the worst thing that I live with. Not the broken bones. Not what they did to me. It's people like Walter Ograd. He's sitting there on death row and he's innocent. A man that I met in the 1990s and it horrifies me that this man is still sitting there. Like, I have to live with what they did to me, but I have to live with the people I cared about in there because that's how I became a human being. In there, while they were torturing me, I made men around me stronger. I made men around me believe in themselves. You know why? Because no one would do it for me. Everybody right. thought I was just a sick degenerate. No, I believed in something. In 1990, I cried really hard when I saw Nelson Mandela getting out of prison. Because he wrote a really beautiful thing that said, For you to hold yourself as no one serves no one. When you make yourself out to be small... You make everyone out around you to be that much smaller. But when you hold yourself up to be strong, you make everyone else around you that much stronger, that they believe that much more in themselves, that you take away from all the pain you've lost yesterday. I love that. I, I, I do apologize. I've been a little bit scattered here. I'm trying to get everything in that I can in this short time. And I wanted to thank you for what I've been listening to you guys do. See, there are men that have only spent 23 months waiting for one thing. I know what it's like to wait three decades for happiness. And what I hope that they get from this experience when you get them home, gentlemen, I believe in you. No one can put forth a more beautiful effort than you guys are doing, and I know you'll succeed because too much wrong has been done. But you have to be patient in your lives, and you have to understand you need to be strong for the people that need you to be strong from within. And when they get out, they're going to really need you to understand that it's so hard because they're going to have feelings of feeling so far behind everybody. Right. And we, uh, we ensure that, you know, we will be their support system. Uh, just like you say, it, only be it, it begins when they get out. And, and, you know, Nick, something that you were saying that, you know, that you still, you know, you look back at the friends that you made, at the guys that you tried to help, and that's what it's about is even when you get out, uh, some people we've heard, you know, they get out and they say, hey, you know, I want to move on with my life. I'm, I'm done with it. I want to leave that behind. But it's all about helping your fellow man. It's all about remembering the guy that you that that you left in there and, and beginning to fight for him, because that's when that's when uh, your life becomes full. Like you like you say, your your life started when you start looking at someone else when you said hey you know i'm going to live to help somebody else i'm going to live to love somebody else and 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 we have to uh you know tip our hat to you to say you know the fact that you're that you're still fighting that you're raising the flag for the guys that are still there right. and saying hey you know i'm out but there's still guys who are locked up uh unjustly and we need to continue the fight for them. So we uh we we're grateful to you for that. Yes. 
I appreciate that, gentlemen. And and one of the things I just encountered was how um, there are some people who are so hardcore that they don't care about humanity. Uh, uh, a member of the California Attorney General's office recently said, despite three separate DNA testing, that I was only wrongfully convicted. I'm not an innocent man. And I was really hurt more than anything else by the fact that I was at home having dinner with my mother, who's now deceased, my father, who's 81, my sister. And it was on my mother's dead grave that he was then dancing. And it really offended me. But then I recognized something came out of that evening when he insulted me like that. See, everyone believes that uh, I'm active in this manner because of the personal things that have befallen me. But it's not true. What I am... Did we just lose him? Oh wow! So uh, you know, let's uh, we're, we're going to try and get get him back, but uh, at the same time, you know, this is uh, Nick is, is sharing his story and he's right. talking about his his movie that's coming out. And I was just mm-hmm. looking at a little bit of the trailer here, mm-hmm. and uh, it has a lot of uh, uh, animation in it, has, yeah. and has him sharing his story and, and so forth. It's quite and interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. And so I, I kind of would like to know what uh, what he's doing right now. You know, as far as his life goes. You know, I know he's 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 doing the movie or what have you. But you know, what else is is uh, you know, and how are things working for him now since he has been out and so forth? Well, you know, I, I was I was curious as to what uh, made him leave the country. And yeah, and, and, exactly. I mean, exactly. I, I don't think you probably you probably don't have to dig too deep mm-hmm. uh to ask that question oh, really uh i mean if you if you spend 22 23 years uh wrongfully uh convicted and, and wrongly row? incarcerated oh my gosh. and uh and 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 on death row exactly. like you said exactly. and all the things that he went through uh you know when you when you're able to leave yeah. then probably yeah let, let me raise up and get on out of here yeah. so cliff we got a caller yes uh we have a caller with uh, hello, qualified for at zero percent interest, and you could do six months. Let's kill that one. Maybe they weren't calling to talk to us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or they got something else going on in the absolutely, background there. Absolutely. So hey, uh, until we get Nick back on, and and and, it's, and, and we're going to see if we'll be able to get him back on. Mm-hmm. Let's let's jump to one of these news items that we had here, uh, where you know, just today. Mm-hmm. We have a man in New York City who spent uh, 25 years in prison. Yes. I mean, this is another situation where a person spent over 20 years, I mean, 25 years in prison. And, Cliff, I know when you were reading about this one earlier, it just sounded crazy. I mean, how are you going to prosecute somebody for a murder when they weren't even in town? Exactly. And then put them away for 25 years. Yeah, you know, the stupidest thing about this, this man was 1,100 miles away from where the murder happened. And they had phone records that showed that he was 1,100 miles away. That's amazing. And yet they try him, they convict him. They they have a witness who, you know, she ended up coming back and says that she lied and singled out uh, Mr. Fleming in exchange for having felony charges dropped against her. And, and you know, we read this so many times where you you have an eyewitness right. who, who lied. You mm-hmm. have a prosecutor who did this. You have a person who says, you know, they they heard from this person that they committed this crime. But what happens to these people? 
that come in and and lie about this stuff? Why isn't this woman being prosecuted for perjury? Yeah, that's why? Amazing. How this? And then the the other sick part about this. I mean, because this happened in uh, in um, in Brooklyn's 90th precinct, where they have this retired detective. Lucy Scarcella, and we have read articles about him before. I mean, they say dozens of cases worked by Scarcella have been reopened by the DA's Conviction Integrity Unit Mm -hmm. after a high-profile 1990 uh, murder case that Scarcella investigated. Scarcella, I'm sorry, investigated was thrown out. So this man is known for the way that he did investigations, fabricating, uh, you know, evidence coming up with witnesses that were never there. So they have all his cases. Like, why don't you guys take everything that this man did and just say we need to throw this? You know what? If you're sitting in jail anywhere in New York, you know, and this guy was the one that investigated you. Oh my goodness! Oh man, I I think that's an immediate yes uh, (laughs) petition or or an immediate motion for review of your case. Uh, well, it, it's good because they said that the, the Brooklyn District Attorney, since he took office in January, um, has been uh, reviewing dozens of murder convictions dating back all the way to 1980, yeah. or, the, or the 80s, rather. So that's a, that's, that is awesome. You, you don't know how many people that's going to come out um, after that. And Cliff, I think uh, this is the same guy that, uh, I don't know if it was during the the Central Park Five or, or one of the other cases that we had uh, yeah, some of the definitely. guys on the show and, you know, they were like, what, 15, 16 years old. Mm-hmm. And they were saying how, you know, they, they put them in a room and they just intimidate yeah. them and, 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 and beat them co- up. Beat them and there were coerce a few them. of the guys, too, from Illinois, the same thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that, that, that's good news uh, on, on the one hand. That, you know you what know, made me mad? They're they, they going to do this. The man was on his Disney World vacation. Yeah. Disney World. Yeah, he's on vacation and they say you committed murder. He's Are you like, kidding? He's like, I was at Disney World. Here's the family pictures. Here's yeah. here's phone records. Okay. Here's my ticket stuff. Here's all this stuff. But yet they prosecute him and convict him and he spends twenty five years in prison while they had this evidence on the table. It's uh it's sad. Very, it, very it sad. Absolutely, really absolutely. So we got this other article, uh it came out a few days ago says, sorry about your time on death row, pal. Nothing we can do. That's not yeah, our That's fight. sick. Yeah, and this, this article <laughs> talks about um, there's a guy named um, Joe D'Ambrosia. And what happened is they, they have this prosecutor, and this prosecutor named uh, uh, Carmen, Carmen Marino, mm-hmm. um, he, he prosecuted D'Ambrosia. He got him put in prison. D'Ambrosia fought the charges, fought the charges, ended up getting getting out. Mm-hmm. And so then he went about to sue this prosecutor, Marino. Exactly. And basically, you know, Marino is protected by absolute immunity mm-hmm. because he's a federal prosecutor. So then what D'Ambrosia ended up doing is saying, okay, I'm going to file these other claims, saying that the county had an established pattern of or practice of prosecutor misconduct. Now, this prosecutor, Marino, has no less than – Ten charges of prosecutorial misconduct against him, and most of them were founded that yes, he did things wrong. He was he's never been prosecuted, yeah. and they they um, D'Ambrosia put in three claims. He lost all three, mm-hmm. and it says the decision explicitly acknowledged mm-hmm. that there is no question that the individual prosecutor involved in D'Ambrosia's case violated rights secured to him by the Constitution. So they're saying yes, he 
violated your constitutional rights. I finished that. But no one but no one held. will be held accountable okay. for it for it. And D'Ambrosia is just out, out of luck. luck. What kind of stuff is and that? And they're saying according to the appeals court decision, at least three men could be on death row because former star prosecutor Carmen Marino mm-hmm. hid evidence. Yeah. Three others had murder convictions set aside, one because of an appeals court called Marino's highly uh, improper and highly prejudicial Mm -hmm. conduct. The others, because he hid key evidence or lied lied about secret deals with jail witnesses, Marino won seven death sentence uh, cases in the 80s. He says he he never lied or hid evidence. Now, he's lying to the judges in the county saying, I never lied or hid evidence, but then they found evidence that he did. Then it says that the uh, Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Judge Daniel Gall said Marino should be criminally prosecuted, prosecuted. for the abuses. The judge That's is saying right. this man needs to go to prison That's for what right. he did. That's sort of what Sidney was saying earlier. It's exactly. like when you find someone in that situation, man, they need to they need to feel the wrath of, of, of judgment. Yeah, and the the judge said yeah. there's nothing but one exactly. deceitful act after another. Mm-hmm. To permit anyone to be put to death after being prosecuted by Carmen Marino would be so ethically inappropriate, mm-hmm. you'd almost be culpable yourself. That's so, the truth. So you're basically saying, so this judge is saying, if you let these death sentences go and let these people die, you're guilty of committing murder That's yourself. exactly right. And he says... Um, Marino once offered a witness immunity in exchange for testimony, then allowed the witness to lie about that offer under no, oath. No. This man is crazy. Yeah. Like, now I'm going to give you immunity, but when you get on the stand, tell them that I didn't give it exactly. to you so that nobody will know that, uh, that you're basically, that I'm buying you as a witness. And it says in a 2003 report, the Center for Public Integrity found five other cases in which Ohio courts overturned convictions due to Marino's misconduct. But nothing is going to happen to him uh, as far as D'Ambrosia's case because even though he proved that this man committed 10 acts of prosecutorial misconduct in his county, mm-hmm. they're saying it was only he only found it was one bad apple. You know that. And so he doesn't have, he doesn't have grounds for a suit. Uh, one bad apple, this man put him in prison. That's one bad listen, apple too many. Okay, and, and, he's, and got then, eight, he's got seven people yes, on death row. But check it out. Prosecutor of the Year Award. Yeah, did he you got see that? the Prosecutor of the no, Year no, no. Award. Th- th- there was an award that was named, named after, after him. Right. The Prosecutor of the Year <laughs> Award is named after <laughs> Carmine yeah. Like, it was what? Carmen Marino. Uh, <laughs> Carmen Marino Award is what it was. You, you think he got it first though? Oh, I have no and idea. And then they named it. But but back this was a few years back. Yeah, they actually, they, 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 they nixed that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would think. The, uh, the prosecutor Bill Mason, he he did away with that. He just mm-hmm. ended up calling it the Prosecutor of the, of the Year Award. That's, oh and they said goodness. there is nothing, nothing to be celebrated about Carmen uh, is Marino. Is this man in prison? Oh no, he's not. Is in he prison. dead? He he's retired. And the thing is, he was he was the lead prosecutor in the county. And so they say even after he left, you know, since he trained the other prosecutors, they said last year an assistant prosecutor, one of the guys he trained, Mm -hmm. was fired for creating a fake Facebook identity to (laughs) chat with defense witnesses online. That you know, that happened in Louisiana. You know, that ended at the federal level. That was a huge investigation where they actually ended up having to bring in outside investigators and outside special investigators and prosecutors 
at the federal level within the uh, uh, U.S. Attorney's Office in, in New Orleans because of that same kind of stuff. That is mm-hmm. sick. You say that I'm the prosecutor. I'm going to make a Facebook page so I can talk to the to the defendant and get get uh get information about the case. Wow, wow, <laughs> that one is sick. Hey, in the in the last couple of minutes before we go to start uh, to wrap things up, uh, let's jump to this one. Uh, it, it's I guess it more so falls in the category of uh, being informative. Uh, it's understanding how and why judges become corrupt. So that title in and of itself is an acknowledgement okay, that, they, that, that judges yep. are uh, not all. Uh-huh. Let, me, let me rephrase that. We never throw the baby yeah, out with, baby the bad with the bathwater thing. Okay. But understanding how and why our judges become corrupt. Let's jump down to the second one here, uh, Ella, where it says uh, seclusion and lack of accountability breed corruption. Mm-hmm. And it says judges become corrupt because no one except the victims mm-hmm. knows what goes on in that courtroom. Mm. And none of the victims know about each other. So they can't create petitions. And then the lawyers aren't going to say anything because they will more than likely be in front of that same judge next week. That's it. And so and, and, and that's true. I mean, think about in, in dealing with the IRP6 case. The hallways of the courtroom have to be the most desolate places yes. that you have ever seen. Oh. I mean, the the marble floors and the marble walls are all shiny. And that's whether you are the one on trial or not. <laughs> you're just going there. Exactly. You know, to, uh, but, but you walk in there, and you're in the courtroom, and and the only people that's, that knows what's going on are the people that are sitting in that courtroom. Exactly. And then if the judge don't want to let people know what happened in there, the judge uh, uh, mysteriously omits 200 pages of, three, okay. 200 pages of a transcript. That's funny you say that because it's a transcript here. I thought, okay, yeah, and that's then, it. And then who holds the judge accountable? You know, we, we've been waging a war trying to figure that hmm. one out for the last that's two years. That's one of those like, things that make you yeah, say, hmm. it's like, who holds the judge accountable? <laughs> this article should say understanding how and why corrupt judges get executed that's what it should state that's okay why how and why judges become corrupt they should be held accountable it's like okay we know they're corrupt but nobody does anything well, about just it. like they say so with unlimited power and no feedback from the public judges come to understand that they can do anything they want and they start to believe that whatever they do is justified that is scary okay that is scary and, and you know it, it kind of brings to mind uh the closing, some of the closing comments from Judge Arguello in the in the case of the IRP six, before each one of the guys, after they uh, did their made their sentencing statement, and when she made the statement that I hold your life in my hands, exactly. It's like uh, I thought it was a, a trinity. I didn't know it was, uh, you know, <laughs> it's a singularity. Yeah. yeah. This sums up the adage: absolute power corrupts absolutely. And this la- the last subtitle. Here it says, judges become corrupt when strong personal agendas enjoy absolute power. So you have absolute power, and so your agenda becomes what you call justice. And you get awarded for it. Yeah, and yeah. put in the Women's Hall of Fame. Absolutely. I got your Hall of Fame. <laughs> this is the Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. We're on the downside of this one. We'll be right back in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Can you imagine spending 20 years of your life in prison for a crime you didn't commit? 
neither could I until I got the opportunity to portray Betty Ann Waters in the film Conviction, telling the real story of how she freed her brother Kenny. Sadly, what happened to Kenny happens far more often than you might expect, but together we can stop it. Please join me in helping the Innocence Project fight injustice. Go to innocenceproject.org to make a donation and get involved. Here are 50 white guys. Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to 1 out of 17. Now, here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are 1 out of 3. Why? Lots of reasons. It's complicated, but one thing is clear. There's a racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of America's drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes, 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white in state prison and federal prison. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparities in America's war on drugs are one big reason that one of three black men can expect to get prison in their lifetime. Their lifetime. Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman with Cliff Stewart and Ethel Lopez. We've had an interesting evening. Uh, let's kind of start wrapping things up. Uh, we got change.org out there uh, for the IRP6 and over 200 pages of transcript that's missing. Please go out to change.org and sign the petition. Put in a comment out there. If you like additional information as to what the IRP6 case is about, there is a brief synopsis on change.org. But then if you like the full details, you can go to freetheirp6.org, freetheirp6.org. We're talking about Gary Walker, David Banks, Dave Zappolo, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, and Demetrius Harper. Ethel, what else are we asking folks to do to help out with well, this campaign? We are asking our listeners out there to to gather your family and your friends, give them a call, you know, send them an email, and ask them to call Attorney General Eric Holder's office at 202-514-2003 and 2005 and ask him to investigate why are there over 200 pages of the trial transcript missing? Now, if you've been listening to the show, you just heard the appellate uh, lawyer, Sidney Powell, talking about that's bizarre. That is bizarre. You let him know that that's bizarre in case he, he, he doesn't. But um, over 200 pages missing, and these guys have been sitting in prison for over 20 months. Something is wrong there. And even in addition to the over 200 pages of transcript, we uh, firmly believe that uh, the jury was not fully informed in this situation and that uh, there was some craziness that happened there as well. So, Cliff, we are making an appeal out to the the jurors as well. Yeah, we're asking the jurors, you know, we understand that 
Judge Arguello did not give you all the information you needed. She didn't present you with all the evidence. When you asked for more evidence during deliberation, she did not give you that. Uh, she gave you arbitrary jury instructions. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and then when she told you you were free to talk to anyone that you wanted to after the trial was over, she went behind closed doors and told you not to talk to the defendants, not to talk to the media. So we know that you have to have questions about these things. We don't hold it against you. Uh, for what the verdict of the trial was. We understand that she's the one who lied to you. She's withholding 200 pages of uh, of the trial transcript. So what other thing did she do wrong? We know that she did. You know that she did. If you have questions about anything, um, give us a call, send us an email, and we will do our best to answer those questions for you. You can reach us at area code 855 Five two nine four two five two. Again, that's eight five 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 two nine four two five two. Or you can send us an email at contact at eight dash justcause.com. And you can uh, also find out more information about a just cause at eight dash justcause.com. Uh, information about uh, AJC radio programming at ajcradio.com and for archives as well. And we have a listing on ajcradio.com of all the special guests that we've had on the program, you'll find some interesting write-ups there. And uh, also go to live365.com for 24 by 7 AJC programming about IRP. We ask that you would like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Also, if you know of anyone out there who uh, has a platform whereby uh, th this story can get shared as far as the IRP 6, we would ask you to reach out to us as well. Coming up in the next couple of weeks, uh, Just Cause Coast to Coast will be a part of the PRN.FM family. And so we're looking forward to that. Again, that's going to be on PRN.FM. And uh, we're going to be on, on Sunday afternoons there, or Sunday mornings, actually. Mm -hmm. And so uh, more information to come on that. And so we're looking forward to that. Uh, again, we ask that you continue to keep our brothers in prayer. Gary Walker, David Banks, Dave Zapolo, Kendrick Barnes. Clint Stewart, and Demetrius Harper. Let's say our shout-outs uh, to the team. All right. I want to say thank you very much to all of our guests tonight, Sidney Powell and Nick Yarrow. Thank you for uh, joining us. Also, I want to say thank you to uh, everybody in the chat room for your questions and your comments tonight. We appreciate it. To uh, K&D Productions, helping ill skill a girl we have. Captain Kyle and Dustin Jackson. If it wasn't for them, you would not hear what we have to say tonight. And to the production support team, they give us the material that we need to present to you, and we thank them for their help, their time that they spend researching, making sure that we have what we need. And to the truth, we know that you're out there, and we appreciate it. And we also just want to tell you again to be on the lookout for Sidney Powell's book titled License to Lie, Exposing Corruption in the Department of Justice. We all need to read that book, and it will be on shelves May 1st. And I want to give a shout-out to the entire Just Cause team. You work very hard. Thank you for all your efforts. Thank you. And, you know, on Sydney's book, you, you know, uh, again, uh, on the jacket of the book, is just to jump out at you. And when it says, when the guardians of justice become the perpetrators of injustice. And she just unfolds it, man. She calls names Absolutely. out. Absolutely. She's naming names. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, when you, you, the book is very enlightening. At any rate, you can join us here on a Just Cause Coast to Coast each Tuesday and Thursday uh, from 6 to 8 p.m. Mountain Time. That's 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. And we just uh, ask that you would join in and listen 
and call a friend. Tell them. Join us. So I'm Sam Thurman along with Cliff Stewart and Ethel Lopez. Shoot us a line. Uh, like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Join this the program. Is a, <laughs> this is a Just Cause Coast to Coast where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. Have a good evening, America. Good night, y'all. Good night. Get out there. Sign that petition, change.org. Do a search on IRP6. Let us know that you're with us. Have a good night. Talk, news, politics, and inspiration. Politics and inspiration. You are listening to the